Hello, I'm Marcus Smith. The Constant Wonder Podcast is a search for awe. And this is a search that frequently takes us out into what we most often think of as nature. Oceans, forests, deserts, mountains, the animal and plant kingdoms, sometimes deep into outer space or deep into the human body. So it's just not surprising at all that I've been asked from time to time, is Constant Wonder a nature show? And of course it is that, but not only that. You have to include all of nature because there's also human nature and human experience and human phenomena to account for. We are part of the big story of awe. I'm never surprised when someone experiences awe at the sound of a bugling elk or seeing a hummingbird hatch. But just as frequently, or even more often, people report experiencing feelings of awe when they encounter the moral beauty of the human spirit, human resilience, generosity, courage, self-sacrifice, and other such virtues, or just to witness another human overcoming what might seem like insurmountable odds. So in that vein, get ready for a nature episode. We're going to be talking with Clint Edwards. He's a dad of three and a husband of one. He's a guy whose hilarious honesty has given hope and laughter to tens of thousands who have bumped into him in the New York Times or Washington Post or on his popular blog titled No Idea What I'm Doing. Clint Edwards has been featured on Good Morning America, and he's got books out there about fatherhood. You're quickly going to sense that he's a very funny guy, but the humor in this episode will be comic relief, not our end game. We are here to discuss his most recent serious book, actually. It's titled Anxiously Ever After, An Honest Memoir on Mental Illness, Strained Relationships, and Embracing the Struggle. So rather than just laughing at Clint's foibles as a lovable dad, he's totally self-effacing, which is part of what people love about him, we're going to hear a lot about the tragic struggles that he has had relating to his own father and about Clint's own lifelong anxiety, a condition he inherited from the double whammy of both nature and nurture. The two women who raised him, his mother and grandmother, both struggled with anxiety. We're going to look into that part of his history. But above all, we're going to be learning how he manages his own struggles with what can be a debilitating mental illness in order to be not just a functioning adult, but a stable father and husband. Clint and I began our conversation talking about a moment in his high school days growing up in Provo, Utah. The story is quite amusing in hindsight, if you'll pardon a pun, the meaning of which will become clear very quickly. But when it happened, this incident was anything but funny. I was in high school and I was in P.E., and we were at what we called the far field. You had to cross the tennis courts and then part of the football field and then cross the street and then go to this field over kind of by the hospital there. And we were playing softball and, uh, and if I caught a pitch and I felt this just vibration in my body and it was just this surge of nausea and anxiety. I could just feel the waterworks turning in there. <laughs> And I knew that I had to get to the restroom and I had to get there fast. And so I just dropped my mitt and my ball like right there in the field and just started running. And I don't know if you've ever ran while you really needed 
to poop, but it doesn't, like, the two are in conflict <laughs> with each other, you know? So I would go in these dead sprints, and then I would have to, like, stop and kind of regain control of my body. closest building was one of the oldest, most rundown, just terrible buildings. And, uh, and I knew that the restrooms in there were bad. You know, you were lucky if you had a toilet seat on some of those. So I, I made it to the D-Wing and I thought, okay, I'm going to make it. I'm just going to have to use one of these really nasty restrooms. And all of a sudden it just like, I hit the eye of the storm and everything calmed. And I'm like, oh, I'm feeling okay now. And I thought to myself, I could make it to, I believe it was A-Wing, which was like the newer part of the building. And the restrooms were nicer. And, and I got greedy. And I made it maybe two steps away from D-Wing. And it happened. We all know it's common for people to say, my stomach was tied up in knots. But what Clint was experiencing was the result of intense anxiety. It may come as a surprise for you to learn that a pathological degree of anxiety, including the experience of an anxiety attack, can lead to suddenly doing one's business in one's pants. It's driven by a surge of stress hormones like cortisol, adrenaline, serotonin. At this point in his life, Clint had no acquaintance with the medical explanation for the cause and effect of what was going on. But put yourself in his pants. Even if you did know what was going on, what are you going to do? And so I thought, well, what I'll do is, is I'll just walk down the hall, keep my back to the wall, and then no one will be able to see what was happening. Classes were still in. I thought I'd be okay. And so I'm like doing this little sideways shuffle down the hall. And, uh, and suddenly there was like an open class door. And like there were kids in there and there were friends. And, and so I crossed the hall very quickly. And I had to do that maybe half a dozen times because of open classroom doors. And, and I made it all the way to the pay phones in the front of the school. I called my grandmother collect and, and I asked her to come pick me up. And when she asked me why, I just told her this lie that there was a bomb at my high school and they were evacuating the school. And she said something like horse pucky, <laughs> something like that, something very depression era. And then I went out to the front of the school and I was waiting and like people would come by and I would tell them more lies, you know, like I told them, yeah, you know, this, my brother was on a roller coaster and he got hit in the head with a bolt, you know, <laughs> just like just ri ridiculous stuff just to get them to leave me alone. And then this girl that I just had the, this huge crush on, she was crossing the street. She just ran at me to give me a hug. <laughs> you know, it's like teenage girls do sometimes. And, and I remember thinking, like, I wanted her to hug me so bad because I was, like, had such a crush on her. But at the same time, like, this was just the worst humanly possible time to have some girl you have a crush on give me a hug. And so she ran, and, and she just jumped into my arms and gave me a hug. And she pauses, and she goes, what smells? And I'm like, I don't smell anything. <laughs> <laughs> and she, uh, she said, oh, it smells terrible. And she's like, did you crap your pants? And I'm like, no. And she's like, well, what smells like a turd? And I said, I don't know, you? I felt like such an idiot, but I didn't know what else to do. And then my grandmother came. So here Clint is telling me this story and was about to march right on without telling me 
whatever became of this girl, you know? Did they ever talk again? I ended up getting a great piece of the story that doesn't even appear in his book, although it does happen to have been included in the very first essay he ever wrote, which was for a college class. My professor loved it, and my wife loved it, and they thought it was hilarious. It was the first time I really thought, man, this is fun writing. And so I was working on the draft of this thing, and I had it at work, and I was working at the Olive Garden. And this girl who hugged me after the incident um, actually came in because <laughs> um, she still lived in the town, and, and I was her server. And so I asked her at the table, I said, hey, I wrote a story, and you're in it. And she says, really? And, and I said, you know, would you like to read it? And she said, sure. And so she read it at the table with her friend. And they were like crying, laughing. And this has got to be, I was probably in my mid-20s by this point. So this has been 10 years later. And she didn't remember any of it. <laughs> so this story that just completely crushed me uh, growing up, and I, and I kept so close to the chest and would never tell anyone, she had totally forgotten about it. You know, when I first started writing, that was the first essay I ever wrote was that one. I don't know why I was drawn to that story because <laughs> it's, it's remarkably traumatic uh, to think about. But I wrote that at Utah Valley University in my first English class. And the teacher actually pulled me aside and said, this is really funny. And he's like, this is really well done. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, this was the most fun I've ever had in school. <laughs> was was uh, <laughs> writing a story. And uh, that essay, you know, most of my writing is very confessional. And I don't know why God made me that way. <laughs> but I've always had a real problem with saying too much, being a little too honest and open. And I think it's part of what has made me have success in writing. Um, but on the flip side, people usually feel safe confiding in me. I'm just wondering, when you tell that story, is it out and out funny to you? Or do you, do you wince a little about the memory? I, I mean, there's plenty in my life that I wince about. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of people feel that way. But I know that uh, for a long time, it was almost to my detriment that I just didn't feel embarrassment, or at least not in the way normal people would. So it, it's really only been in probably the last five or 10 years that I've started to say, man, that was embarrassing. But I will say that particular story, I didn't tell that story to anyone for years. I don't even know if I ever told it until I started writing it down. And I think that's when I started to realize how therapeutic writing can be and writing and reflecting on your life and making peace with these moments that you might not want to approach with another human. Well, I want to turn now to uh, something that's that's not lighthearted, and that is you and your brother are trying to find your father. There's been estrangement. You're not living with him, and your parents are split up, and you find him at the brink, really, of death. I was probably, I guess I was 13 or 14, and my father, uh, I hadn't talked to him. It had been close to a year he left my mother for another woman, and I didn't really know where he was. We didn't fully realize that he was having drug addiction 
issues. He was definitely an early victim of the opioid epidemic. And back then, it just seemed like, oh, he visited a doctor, so it must be medicine. And I hadn't seen him in a year, and I was curious where he was. When, and my brother came home, and he said, I found Dad. My brother had a car by this point. I can't remember how he found him, but he just f- said he figured out where he lived. And we drove up to this home, and his truck was in the driveway, and the brake lights were on, but we didn't see him. And I went in the house, and the house was unlocked. And so I went in, and clearly it was his home. There were pictures of him and some of his things. And then my brother called for me. And so I went out to the driveway, and my father was, was hunched over in the truck um, with erratic breathing, uh, foam coming out of his mouth. I was young teen, so it was my brother, and, and we pulled him out of the truck, and the truck started to roll backwards. And so we hit the emergency brake, and we dragged him into the house. And we didn't know what was going on with him, so we called the ambulance, and suddenly he sprang to life ever so slightly and said, don't call anybody, don't, don't tell nobody. Is what he, would, he was crying at us, and... Then he kind of passed out, and we went to the hospital with him. It was wild because we were sitting there talking to these doctors, just these two young boys, and they told us that he had a drug overdose, and they started talking to us that maybe we'd saved his life, that he was pretty near death. And then they told us that he needed to get into some sort of a rehabilitation program. And I remember just not fully understanding the words that they were saying. I mean, a rehabilitation program, drug overdose, you know, I mean, I... I didn't know what to what to make of this, what they were telling us, and the fact that we were the only two people there for him it was pretty wild. His wife, who he had left my mother for, had left him. We gave him a drive home, and it was late. And uh, all he said was, "Is I didn't want you to see me like that." And then he sent us home. I mean, you went to go find him, and so at some level, these teenage kids care about him, and yet. Um the rift there was big enough that I don't know that you, at that time, could you have said, I, I love my dad, I like my dad, I, I, you know, I, I'm going to be involved with my dad? Or was there resentment and embarrassment? Or, or what, what was it? I mean, I think it was a mix of all those emotions. I think I had a strong desire for him to be, because you've got to understand, you know, pre-addiction, I remember really loving my father and thinking he was a real attachment figure for me. He was this very calming influence the kind of dad that would put his hands in his pockets and then pull them out like they were guns and they were his tickle fingers and come chase after me. And those moments I I really smile about. The cover of Clint's book, Anxiously Ever After, features an old photo of the family gearing up for the 4th of July parade. His dad had built an airplane out of sheet metal, And the boys are dressed in aviator costumes. Everybody looks happy. Dad is engaged. The kids are proud of him. Mom is pleased with them all. I I miss that, but he had a number of surgeries and accidents, work accidents, and he became addicted to opioids. And slowly he became a very different person. And my life became very, very different. And so as he slowly became something other than what he was, all I remember the most of anything in my childhood was longing. I longed for him to be this father that he used to be or this father that I knew he could be. When he started to pull away and disappear, it was just this big void. It just felt like this big absence in my life of knowing what he could or or should be and not really knowing why he was gone, but wishing he would make the changes to come back. And, And, you know, when he died, I didn't cry at his funeral. I cried almost a year later, and it was because 
I finally realized that he'd never have the opportunity to turn things around and be who I knew he could be. And I think that was the hardest part about his loss. Why did it have to be that way with Dad? His work injuries, the surgeries, then his self-medicating using illegally obtained painkillers. That whole part of the story is such a mess, which alone doesn't fully account for Clint's anxiety. Both parents, of course, contributed genetically to who Clint was and is, and his mom had serious emotional issues of her own. I would like to think that my mother was a victim of a very hard situation. You know, we lived in this house, um, and the backyard was my father's shop, and that's where he ran his business. When he decided to leave, he continued working in the backyard, and his drug addiction started to get worse and worse. And, you know, he met this woman and was having an affair, and then he hired her to work in the backyard as his secretary. And so they would be back there, you know, acting like a new couple, while my mother was in the front yard and and he wasn't paying child support. And my mother was left saddled with raising these children. Um, And I think she had her own mental illness, Um, although she's never explained to me, but I think she has a lot of the same anxiety that I have. And I think she started to break. I mean, he had even gone as far as to build a fence between his end of the yard and ours so we couldn't look at him. And by the time he left, uh, she tore down that fence and she set it on fire. And anything that was left of his in the shop, she just started burning. And there was this clubhouse that was just basically a box of wood, more or less, with a door that my father had built before he left. And that is another one of those really warm memories. And um, she filled it with newspaper and doused it in gasoline and lit it on fire. There was a neighbor that could see through the second-story window, and he asked if we need to call the fire department. My mom was like, no, 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 we're okay. And I remember that was the first time I really started to recognize feeling anxious. I was, I was absolutely terrified when she did that. That's one of those moments that you really start to look back and, and see the root of your own anxiety disorder, and I can feel that that's where it began. I mean, that's one of the best things that I've gotten out of writing this book is to better understand my parents and to find a way to forgive them and to move on. I mean, I had to take a real deep dive into my parents and particularly my father um, and some of the mistakes that he made. And, And I started to realize that he was a subject of his time and place. I mean, he was definitely a victim of of an epidemic. And my mother was a victim of a very, very hard situation. Still a young teenager, Clint Edwards left his mom's house without a word. Very briefly, he tried living with his dad. That wasn't going to work. His dad was strung out, in trouble with the law, having hallucinations. There was someone else related to him who was willing, at least kind of willing, to take him in. We'll tell you about her in just a moment. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. So dad's a mess, mom's a mess, Clint's a mess. As so often happens in these situations, this was a case for the next man or woman up the line, grandma, his dad's mom. So my grandmother lived, you know, within a short bike ride. Uh, So we were on her 
family farm, and that's where my father built his house. He was given some land to build that home and, and the shop. And when things got bad enough at home with my mother and my father's drug addiction was pretty out of control. And to be honest, like my mother was, was very, very angry at the world and everything. I was very scared of her uh, as a child. When I knew I couldn't live with either of them, I moved in with grandma and she was the most blunt <laughs> person I could have imagined. Uh, and But at the same time, she was just this rock of my existence. And, you know, what's interesting is I didn't realize this until years later. You know, she was, uh, she was 78 when I moved in with her. When you're 14, 15 years old, you think your grandparents are like 800. Uh, I knew she was old, but I did not realize that she was, she was that old. I mean, she was 82 when I graduated high school. She was there for me in all the ways that I needed at that time. I don't know if I would have finished high school if I hadn't had her just kind of calm, soothing, persistent uh, example. I think I was very resistant to opening up to her fully. And I think that's part of the lying. I lied so much to her just as a way to kind of protect myself. I definitely told some some whoppers. And it was stuff that I didn't really even need to lie about, you know? Like I wrecked my bike once and I came home. My grandmother was like, what happened? I was like, oh, I was attacked by a cougar, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like just like said it just flat just thought, yeah I was attacked by a cougar and she was like I'm just not even going to press this issue I'm just going to try and help you <laughs> with, with the wounds but she slowly got to the point where she would kind of pull this like how could you do this to your old grandmother you know <laughs> how could you do this to to me and she was you know pushing 80 and and I would just feel so guilty I would give her the truth it worked every time so at this point, as I'm talking with Clint, my mind jumps immediately right back to what he told his grandma when she came to pick him up after he had lied on the payphone about a bomb at the school. That qualifies as a whopper and just doesn't seem a likely bonding moment. <laughs> you know, self-disclosure and honesty and a healthy emotional vulnerability, all those things we hear about today that are supposed to help nurture and cement a relationship. So she picked me up from school after I pooped my pants and um, she rolls down all the windows. She told me she was sorry for not believing me because I had told her that there was a bomb at the school and that's why she needed to pick me up. And she called me a liar. And then uh, I just told her that I was scared all the time. And she told me that she had similar feelings of anxiety. And it was the first time I'd ever had somebody tell me that they felt anxious, same as me. And, uh, and I couldn't help but feel a kinship with her. You know, this was the 90s. Um, I mean, you didn't talk about anxiety. You didn't talk about depression and talk about mental illness. And even now it's relatively taboo, but it was particularly then. And so um, for her to be open and honest with me and say that she struggled with anxiety too. It, it helped me as a teenager to be able to say, you know, I can trust this person. And we started to really connect after that, as tragic as that moment was. So did she talk to you at any great length or did she just kind of say, oh, I have that problem too? Did she elaborate at all about her situation? <laughs> well, I told her that I had uh, you know, uh, I pooped my pants and she said, well, you know, so she, she lovingly called them her poop hats, <laughs> uh, which told me that she'd run into the same problem, which seems to be a universal problem from all the stories that I'm hearing from other people. 
so I'm trying to put myself in your shoes right now, and we I haven't said the word jail yet. What's it feel <laughs> like to have a father in jail? What do you do? It's heartbreaking to sit across from your father and see him on the other end of that glass and to talk to him through that big, heavy phone. It seemed like he was in there for a very long time, but he wasn't. He was in and out of jail. He got in trouble for forging prescriptions and for driving while intoxicated and for writing bad checks. It's interesting, when he was in jail, when I look back on that time, that was almost, in a lot of ways, it was the best relationship I had with him. I was one of the few people that he could call and he knew I'd pick up, my grandmother and I. He had visitation hours, and I could go visit him. He couldn't disappear on me. And it was the most sober I'd ever seen him. And I remember driving my grandmother down there to see him once a week, right before he was released. I went to see him with my grandmother, and and he apologized to my grandmother. I couldn't hear what he was saying, but I could just see the words, I'm sorry. And, and he's on the other side of the glass. He's in this orange jumper, and all of his teeth have been pulled out because of his drug addiction. And he was frail. It couldn't have been over 100 pounds. And my grandmother just started crying, and I realized I'd never heard him apologize for anything. And I think my grandmother needed to hear that. And then she gave me the phone, and I was talking to him. And he said... Um, I don't want to see you in here ever. He said, you're the good one. He said, you're better than me. And it was this feeling, this almost freeing feeling that, um, you know, maybe I, I could be better than this. Because it's, you know, when, you're, when you have a drug-addicted parent, um, it can kind of feel like everybody assumes that's where you're going. I think that's where a lot of my fears came from. And a lot of my anxieties came from this fear that I was going to, that other people saw me as a reflection of my father. But to have him tell me that, you know, I don't have to be this way, uh, it was a release. It was a very, it was a very good, it pushed me in a good direction. Grandma, in Clint's words, was his rock. But she was a very old rock, and by the time Clint emerged from high school, and certainly by the time of the scene we've just heard about at the jail, she began to recede into dementia and thus was not such a ready source of strength for him. Without anything you would call a direction in life, Clint took a job stocking shelves at Toys R Us. It was a graveyard shift, and pretty much everybody on the shift was doing drugs. Clint was not. But because he was so sleep-deprived, he did start to show signs of compromised mental function, including something new to him, hallucination. There were times when he may as well have been on drugs. Sleep deprivation can do that. As he careened toward a mental breakdown, he developed a sleep phobia. The more stressed he became about sleep, the less he could sleep. We call that a vicious cycle. And he knew it was a vicious cycle, and he knew he needed help. So he met with a counselor who suggested that exercise might be called for. Well, what did Clint do? He went all in. He went overboard, biking, uh, intensive exercise, usually four to six hours a day. Eating, sleeping, exercising, these things became his focus, his religious fixations. Any deviation from these seemed to trigger chaos and panic. Needless to say, this is not exactly what the therapist had in mind, and it was really hard for Clint. 
he started to tell me that I was showing signs of obsessive compulsive disorder. I said to myself, I'm never going to tell anybody this. And, and I stuck to that for a very long time. Even in my own marriage, I had a real hard time telling Mel about it. A lot of that had to do with, with just what it takes to even explain it. Because the moment you start talking about your own mental illness, you start to realize how it doesn't make any sense. And yet it feels so real and can be so physical and emotional. It's a hard thing to, to verbalize. To this day, Clint is a little bit touchy about the casual use of the term OCD. You know how a lot of people claim to have it and joke about having it. But if you haven't lived with debilitating OCD, he says, you really have no idea. He once turned to an ecclesiastical leader for advice, a Latter-day Saint bishop, who was a tough guy rancher, an outdoorsman, tan as leather, with boots and a bolo tie. Clint tried to explain what he was going through, and the man leans forward and says to him, Have you tried exercise? <laughs> well, all his adolescent emotional sweating didn't just evaporate with adulthood. Clint wasn't just seeing a therapist, he was now also seeing doctors, and before long he ended up with a fairly good-sized gob of medications to help with sleep issues and anxiety, and he was doing at least a, a mild form of doctor shopping during this time. It wasn't long before the specter of his father's fate began to materialize before his inner eyes, and the possibility of that kind of an outcome hung heavily on him. I started having issues with uh, shopping around doctors, similar to what my father was doing. And, but my father was on a much grander scale. He would go from doctor to doctor and just get as many prescriptions as possible. But I was seeing three or four, and they didn't know about each other. And I was starting to abuse uh, various anxiety medications that were relatively addictive. But when my father died, I started having this horrible reoccurring dream that I was him. Because, uh, you know, we, when he died, my brothers and I cleaned out his apartment and we could see how he died. And, you know, I know a lot of people often pay for someone to take care of that. And we just kind of handled it. And, uh, and so I would dream that I was him and I was dying. Um, or sometimes I was watching him die. And it was scary enough that I really started making some serious changes in my life and I stopped taking the bulk of my medications. I stopped seeing doctors. And that's ultimately when I started going back to attending church and, and all that was great. But what I didn't realize is that, yes, I was getting more control over my anxiety in my life, but I wasn't necessarily striving for a balance. I realize we've jumped around a little bit in telling this story. We really haven't quite married him off to Mel, not just yet. So let's pick things up at the point where he's well out of high school, grandma is fading, he has developed, on top of anxiety, sleep and OCD issues, he's fretting over falling into the path of his father, he has cut off doctors and medications, and now to get a fresh start, he does the unthinkable. He moves back in with mom. Mom has now remarried, and she is much more secure financially, although she still has her anxiety. So I want to hear uh, what took you back to your mom, what it was like living there, how you were at odds with each other, the clock on the wall. <laughs> you know, I left my mother at 14. Um, 
or 15, somewhere in there. She was very, very angry, and I was very scared of her. And, um, and we did not have a good relationship. It was a very, it was a hard place to live. And I was um, dealing with my own anxieties, and I knew that if I stayed there any longer, I was starting to have a lot of thoughts of suicide. And so I eventually you know, moved in with my grandmother, as we've discussed. My mother and I spoke intermittently a handful of times a year until I was 21. After my father died and uh, I was broke, <laughs> I was 21 and I was working at this hardware store and I'd started to kind of meet Mel, but we hadn't started dating. And I, I'd spent all my money on, you know, shopping around doctors and, and, uh, and bike equipment for over-exercising, which was a huge part of my obsessive compulsive disorder and anxiety management was over-exercising mostly around cycling and mountain biking. I just didn't have the money. And so, and my grandmother was in a rest home and my father was dead and I didn't know where else to go. And so I went and asked my mother if I could live with her, uh, for the first time in, you know, six, seven years. And I was shocked when she agreed. I think she knew that this was an opportunity for us to rebuild. And I think part of me knew that too, even though I was really nervous. And uh, I think for the first probably several months I was there, we just, we didn't really talk. Uh, we avoided each other, it seemed. She told me, <laughs> she told me she loved me and I was her son, but she didn't really want me there, <laughs> you know, which is just kind of my mom's kind of bluntness. So much of my anxiety was around, a lot of my anxiety was around time and the passage of time and getting to bed at a certain time. Um, and I was still really struggling with that. And I had a real hard time with clocks, which is, uh, and so if, if, if there were, was a clock around me after about seven or eight o'clock, I really had a hard time with it. Um, and I, I would get really, really anxious because it felt like it was telling me I needed to start calming down and getting to bed or I wouldn't get to sleep. And if I didn't get to sleep, I would have anxiety. And even just like as I'm telling this, it doesn't make sense. So, you know, just bear with me. And uh, I, But can you feel that anxiety in your memory just thinking about clocks right now? Yes. And I mean, even to the point, if you ever came into my bedroom, you'd notice my alarm clock is pointed the other way. <laughs> it's pointing against the wall so I can look at it and then put it back. I need control over that clock. And my mother, you know, the room that she gave me, she, she basically told me, you know, don't touch anything. And there was this clock in there that was massive. <laughs> it was just, it took up like a, you know, a quarter of the wall. And, uh, and it was, I was like, this is going to send me over the edge, you know, but I was like afraid to tell her that I, I didn't want it in there. And I, I didn't think she would understand. And I didn't know how to explain all this stuff. And so, you know, one time when she was downstairs and I thought she was gone, I thought, okay, I'm just going to move this clock in the other room. I'm not going to say anything. We'll just be real quiet about it. And it was almost like there was an alarm on that clock, like, like some sort of a burglar alarm. And she comes sprinting up and she's just like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm just, I'm just moving this in the room. I just can't. I can't. Like these clocks make me so anxious and I'm like shaking. And, and I turned and looked at my mother and she said, things have a place and they need to stay there or something to that regard. And... And I saw her hand start to shake the same way my right hand would shake when I would get anxious. And suddenly I just realized that she had the same anxiety that I have, only it was around placement of, of stuff. And things needed to be where they needed to be. And somehow this, the whole you know, tension between us just started to break. And I explained how I was so anxious around clocks and she understood. And she said, I can understand the anxiety. And um, and it was this moment where 
for the first time, you know, I was 21 years old, we started to kind of peel back the layers of our own uh, issues with anxiety. And, and we came to a compromise that the clock would stay in the room, but we could cover it with a garbage bag, <laughs> which just seems like something people, crazy people would come up with. Um, but it was, that was the moment when we started, our relationship started to mend, um, was because we, we kind of had this same connection over that. We were able to talk and, and, uh, and slowly our relationship got better. But, you know, I felt terrible about the way I left. When I left my mother, I, I just packed my things and left while she was, you know, she was working these crazy hours and she was cleaning houses and I left while she was gone and I didn't leave a note or anything. I just, I just left. And uh, so we went snowboarding up at Sundance, and I finally told her I was, I told her I was sorry. I told her I was sorry for the way I left. I told her it was a hard situation and that I was afraid I wasn't going to be here much longer if I stayed, um, but I shouldn't have left like that. And, uh, you know, she, she started to get teary, and, and that really was when our relationship finally started to mend. Round about this time, Clint left the chaos and the stress of his Toys R Us job for a much calmer gig in the garden section of a big box hardware store. That's where he met Mel, who would become his wife. She was pretty funny herself, also a Latter-day Saint, seemed to come from a completely normal family, and was definitely not shy. Mel obviously saw something in Clint. They became friends, and then an item— but now Clint needed a career for himself and if their relationship was to go forward, so he considered getting a job as a prison guard, naturally, because anybody with anxiety should consider working in a prison, right? Well, uh, he was driving one day toward Point of the Mountain. That's the colloquial name for the Utah State Penitentiary that was about 20 minutes north from where he lived and where he hoped to land a job. On that drive, his thinking took an unexpected turn, as did his car. I was driving to take a polygraph test over at the point of the mountain, and I decided... No, slow slow down here. Uh, A person that is riddled with anxiety taking a polygraph test, this is a problem. (laughs) I, well, and considering I, I, they, they gave me, essentially the way it worked is they gave me a list of questions that I had to fill out. And then they were going to ask me the questions again under a polygraph test. And I had lied on a bunch of those questions. And I knew I wouldn't be able to pass the polygraph test. And so... But at the same time, I didn't know what other options I had. And so I went to I-15, and I was going to go north. And on a whim, I went left. And I went to Utah Valley State College, which is UVU now. And I went into the front door, and I said, I'd like to be a student here. And then I went to Mel. We were dating, and she was living in this little apartment across the street from the liquor store. And uh, I told her I'd signed up for school, and I didn't know how to type. I said it was the stupidest thing I'd ever done. And I don't know what I was thinking. And, and all she said was, is I'll help you. That first semester, I hand wrote my papers and she would sit there and type them. But my handwriting and spelling was so bad that she couldn't read them. So I would read those papers to her um, and she would type them. And that lasted a semester. And then she's like, you're going to need to learn how to type. But she never stopped helping me. And uh, I couldn't help but I mean, I was already in love with her, but I couldn't help but really fall in love with her the way that she just was so eager to invest and help me develop and grow into into the person I am now. 
You mentioned Mel, and then I have to ask you, at some point, you're going back before even meeting Mel, you're bringing maybe dates by and grandma sizing them up, right? <laughs> yes. She was not very enthusiastic about anybody that I dated. If a girl called on the phone, she was pretty old school, she would say, girls shouldn't call boys, and she'd hang up. And she'd hang up as hard as she could so that she could kind of make their ears sting, you know, on that old rotary phone we had <laughs> uh, at the house. Uh, but she, she was very protective in that regard. And as a teenager, I hated it. And now, you know, thinking back, I, I, I get it to some extent. But it was, it was heartbreaking when, you know, a friend of mine would call who was a boy and they were a little late on the puberty game and she would assume they were a girl. Um, and she'd say, girls shouldn't call boys. Just hang up on them as hard as she could. <laughs> The two most important women in Clint's life, the two who seemed most invested in his success, are about to meet each other. There's going to be a handoff of sorts, a passing of the baton. I'm Marcus Smith. This is Constant Wonder. Well, how did you introduce Mel then, and how, how did that how that come off? So by the time I met my wife, uh, Mel, and we started dating, um, my grandmother was in a nursing home and she was struggling with dementia. And I would visit her every day. Whatever time it was, I would, I would make sure to visit her. And I took Mel to see her. And, you know, I didn't know what to expect. And that's kind of what you get with, with dementia. You know, sometimes she was the same old grandmother asking me about my day and, 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 you know, calling me sweetie. And then other times she would, she would cry out for a cousin named Madge that I'd never even heard of. Um, but I brought Mel to meet her and my grandmother rolled over and she wasn't completely lost, but she wasn't necessarily herself. And she just took Mel's hand and put it in mine and, and gave me a pat. And she said, you, you've, you brought me a good one. And then she rolled over and went to sleep. And uh, it was one of those moments I thought to myself, I needed to invest in this relationship. I mean, it was, uh, you know, the, <laughs> the last girl I introduced her to, she told me she was trash <laughs> and not so simple words. And, and I don't know, she wasn't necessarily completely wrong on that one. From the way their relationship developed from friendship to romance to married life, it sure seems like Mel pretty much took to Clint right off the bat that bit about devoting herself to helping Clint in college, you can read a lot into that. Mel sees his potential, even though this guy is bedeviled with self-doubt. She strikes me as a go-getter, if you know what I mean. Uh, it shouldn't shock anybody to think that she was ready to marry him even before he was ready to marry her. He was kind of married to his anxiety. And then as you're about to hear, she was of a mind to start having children before he was so sure it would be a good idea. Actually, everybody ought to have some anxiety about having kids, don't you think? I was really afraid that I would pass on my anxiety disorder and pass on some of the mental illness I struggled with. I was anxious through the whole pregnancy. And so much of my anxiety was around sleep and night and getting enough sleep and and. Uh, I don't want to speak for all parents, but kids don't really subscribe to that. They do what they're going to do, um, and they get up in the night. And I was really nervous that I wouldn't be able to be there for my child uh, the way I knew I needed to be. And and I was afraid that just only proved that I was becoming my father. And that's part of the reason I stopped taking medications. When we had my son, Tristan, 
that first night, um, I remember being very nervous. And that little boy, he was crying and he wouldn't sleep. And I was sitting up with him and I was so anxious. And he just reached up and he gave me one of those little baby, you know, wrap around your finger, you know. And he held on to me and he calmed down. And he looked at me with those dark, dark eyes and then he fell asleep. And somewhere in there, I fell asleep. And I woke up and I remember just feeling this peace that I was going to be able to be there for him. And I don't know where exactly if that was, you know, the spirit, but it was this moment where I just felt like I could, I can do this. I can be there for this, for this child. It's like I crossed over, you know, the line and now I was in this new place and I was going to be able to do it. It would save a lot of time and effort if we could tie a pretty bow on Clint's story right there, the story of how he coped successfully with his anxiety and after that moment of blessed, peaceful assurance, was simply able to put his mental health challenges all behind him. But anxiously, not happily, anxiously ever after is the title of his book. So yes, for a while he did ditch out on doctors and therapy and medication, and yes, Mel did seem to offer unusually long-suffering support and confidence and loyalty. And yes, there were times when Clint thought, I can handle this. But here's how things actually went. I didn't take medication for a good 10 years. Um, And I didn't get better. I, I was trying to deny it or pretend like the anxiety wasn't there. And I thought that that was the way to to learn to live a a healthy life. But slowly the anxiety just started to take over my life more and more. It was until I went to grad school and Mel and I were married and we had two kids and I was really struggling with imposter syndrome, which is something I didn't realize was a part of anxiety and no one had ever discussed that. And I wasn't seeing a therapist or anything for that 10 years. uh, to the point that I would just be these, this nervous wreck and I would shake and sweat and Mel would try and talk me out of it. And I'd tell her she was wrong and that I was a failure and that I was going nowhere. And and um, even though, you know, my grades were very good, I was I was in a fine program and I was headed towards doing okay, but I just couldn't see it. And it wasn't until Mel told me that she, that I needed to, um, I needed to do something different. And it seemed so clear that that she wasn't going to be there anymore um, if I didn't didn't start making some changes. And uh, that was when I finally decided to start taking medication again and start to, I, it really helped me say to myself, I've got to change the way I approach this or I'm not going to still be married and I'm not going to be the father and husband that I want to be. I get the sense that Clint may have seen himself in a double bind. On the one hand, He didn't want to look in the mirror and see his own father, so he'd chosen to avoid using pharmaceuticals, you know, as a crutch, as he saw things. That slippery slope to addiction. But on the other hand, medication was part of what he really did need. So we were a young couple. We'd been married a couple of years, and she wanted to have children. And I was very nervous to have children very afraid I would pass on my anxiety and depression, which also I've learned over the years is a very common fear for someone with mental illness. 
And so she consistently would ask me, I'd be like, you know, uh, what do you want to do tonight? And she's like, oh, why don't we have a child, you know, or why don't, why don't we make a baby, you know? And, and she brought this up just regularly. It was very loving and playful, but at the same time, it felt like we were just kind of dancing around the truth of why I was afraid to have children. And then finally, I just broke down and I, and I told her I was afraid that, that they would end up like me. And she looked at me in this very loving way and said, I'm hoping for it. And she saw in me something that was greater than my anxiety or my mental illness or my troubled childhood. And it was seeing her love me through those eyes, through her eyes, that really made me think, you know, I, I can do this. I've got something to add to, to the world. So, Clint, here we are now with the benefit of hindsight. Lots of years have gone by, and your kids are into their teens. Your anxiety is manageable with the approaches that have worked well that you found. And I just have to ask the obvious, you know, the classic question about have you come to terms with your childhood? I, you drew a hard lot, it seems. Do you ever feel like that was a raw deal that you got shafted by nature and nurture? Well, I don't think that this is an all that unique of a story. And when people talk about uh, mental illness and breaking the cycle and, and generations, I had two parents that had mental illness and this is how it came out and it manifested in myself. And I think that's been one of the greatest challenges of my life right now is to try as hard as humanly possible to break that cycle. And I don't blame either of them. I think there was a time when I felt like I'd gotten the short end of the stick. Um, but now I just, I think that it's so much of it was just life and the situation and the time we were in. Writing this book was a huge part of it to make peace with it and to accept that this is the, the anxiety that I was born with and they were born with something very similar and I'm going to choose to try and manage it as best I can so that I can be the father and husband that I, that I think my children deserve. So let's grapple with your uh, understanding of your father as broken and, and embarrassing and unsuccessful and a failure and all of that. Um, at some point, you encounter a couple of people who knew him, and you get to hear their side of the story. Yeah, I mean, there were years there where I couldn't run into somebody that knew my father that really had anything good to say about him. And to be honest, there were a lot of times that I struggled to find things that were good to say about him. Um, there was 10 years of him as a real heavy drug addict and, and burning a lot of bridges. And then I was talking to my half-sister, um, and she was telling me that, that my nephew had gotten a job doing heating air conditioning work for, uh, for a company. And this guy uh, that had worked with my father pulled him aside and said, hey, I knew your grandfather. And um, and those stories that you've heard, or whatever I, you know, they're not. He he was a good man at one time, and I, I think you should know that. And it, it really struck me because it was one of the first times I'd ever heard somebody say something so warm and positive about this man that had been such a difficult spot in my life. You know, I knew who he could have been, um, particularly from my early early memories. And so I tracked that guy down. And his father uh, was also a heating air conditioning. My father had trained them into the trade. And we just sat there for an hour and they told me stories about my dad 
and how he was such a skilled craftsman and how much how dependable he was and there's so much of it that you can't decide how much of it is that person and how much of it was the drugs and i think that was something i grappled with for a very long time and it felt like this confirmation that he wasn't all bad that he could have once been a good person and had he not fallen into addiction maybe he could have been the father that i needed him to be and that was a very freeing feeling particularly for myself as i was afraid that i was going to become him and that my genetics were a compass and they were pointed in that direction there was no way for me to to avoid it it was this moment where i thought to myself you know if i can manage my mental illness and stay free of addiction you know I got a shot and it was a very freeing feeling to me. When he died, the assumption was it was from an overdose. And yet there's another you got some more information there. I did. So when I was writing this book, I started really researching him and I I got his criminal record and for the first time I got his death certificate. It said that he had an idiopathic stroke or seizure. I always get those two confused. This doctor friend of mine, he said that if that was the cause of death, it could be a drug addiction, but it could also have been from him trying to get clean. Because I was comparing his death certificate with his criminal record, he was charged with a felony about a year before he died. And I was speaking with a friend of mine who's a district attorney, and he said, if that felony was was let go, it's it's quite probable that he had to take a plea deal and he probably ended up in drug counseling. And so I called my half-brother, who's my father's oldest son, and asked him about it. And he mentioned to me that, that dad was trying to get clean. They put him in drug counseling and they were checking everything, including prescription pills. And I thought, you know, last time I saw him, I mean, he was, he was maybe 80 pounds, you know, no teeth. Um, he looked like he was dying and I thought he was at the height of his addictions. But it sounds like he was actually struggling with getting off of drugs. And it's really tragic to think that probably it was trying to get off the drugs that ultimately ended up killing him. And my brother told me that, you know, he was really not happy about the drug counseling at first. He said towards the end there, I think he was really trying. And that that really meant a lot to me. There was a therapist at some point in your counseling who asked you a what-if question, something along the lines of, what do you think your life would be like if you were enjoying yourself more from day to day? That was a breakthrough session for me. Um, This therapist asked me, you know, to imagine what would your life be like if you enjoyed yourself more. It was one of those moments that I think anyone that hasn't dealt with mental illness or anxiety can realize how overwhelming it can be and how ubiquitous it can be that I never really thought about it. Like, how would I live my life if I didn't worry so much? And I started making this list of, you know, I, I celebrate my successes more. I would enjoy the moments, be in the moment with my children. I would be feel grateful that I had overcome a challenging childhood. How would I live my life if I didn't have anxiety? And, and in a way, it almost gave me license to do so. That was a really good, memorable moment that came out of therapy for me. So here we are. We're talking to some heavy stuff right here. And yet your book is really, at times, uh, 
I can't call it uproariously funny because uproariously funny doesn't have the undercurrent of seriousness. Uh, is this like a little bit of sugar helps the medicine go down? <laughs> or uh, <laughs> how are you approaching the idea that you're a really, really funny guy with this uh, really uh, dicey past? I mean, I think my goal when I wrote it is I wanted it to be really funny. That was my hope, was to make it hilarious. But the subject matter was so heavy that I struggled to do so. Um, but I think I think if you can't laugh at yourself and laugh at your situation, I mean, that's been a huge form of therapy for me, um, is to make humor out of it. So yeah, I tried to find humor wherever I could. I think there's a long history of memoirs that are kind of like an airing of family laundry. And I didn't want that. I wanted this book to be funny. I wanted it to be hopeful. And I wanted it to be a source of forgiveness, at least for me, and to help others be able to say, hey, you know, I can laugh at my situation even though it's hard. And that um, I can find forgiveness in the people around me. I think that's that's a huge part of the human condition is to be able to forgive, uh, forgive your family, forgive the people that you care about. When there's a story of significant growth and change, whether it's maturation or coming of age or a conversion or forgiveness, and there's a pivotal change that happens. Whenever there's something like this going on, sometimes it happens all at once, and sometimes it's the aggregate experience of multiple moments. And I kind of see that happening in your book, that little by little by little, light is coming into your vision. I mean, there are moments that were very impactful that pushed me in another direction. That conversation with my father in the jail really helped me kind of feel like for the first time licensed that I could be something other than him. My wife telling me that I needed to change was very transformative to push me to start taking medication again and start to live a more healthy life. And I don't think I would be able to live the relatively normal life that I do now if it wasn't for medication. And we haven't covered this, but it's in the book of, of having a mental health breakdown um, at my work. And that was ultimately what pushed me into therapy. You know, as long as I uh, have therapy when I need it, take medication and make sure that my medications are working and um, lifestyle changes, you know, exercise, uh, meditation, those sorts of things. As long as I do that hard work of mental health management, I can be the father and husband that I want to be. And I can be available enough to be that person. If I learned anything from all of this is that I've got to accept it and manage it and live with the anxiety, not deny it or run away from it. And as long as I do that, I can be there for my family. And that's something that I know from personal experience is a tremendous gift. Anxiously Ever After, an honest memoir on mental illness, strained relationships, and embracing the struggle. That's the latest title from Clint Edwards. If you heard occasional comic relief in our conversation here, it's just nonstop in his book, in spite of the perfectly serious topic. This episode was produced by Eric Schultzka and Anya Searle with help from the BYU Radio Sound Design team, including Addie Mangum, Kevin West, and Clark Jackman. I'm Marcus Smith. The Constant Wonder Podcast is a production of BYU Radio. Oh, and by the way, if you enjoy what you hear on Constant Wonder, be sure to spread the word, write a review, or give us a five-star rating 
You can do that easily wherever you get your podcasts.